Welcome to The Q, Conversations in Digital Media. This podcast is brought to you by Q1 Media, digital campaign execution and optimization since 2004. Hello, everyone. This is James McNeil, your host, and welcome to The Q. Hope all of you are doing well. It's officially summer, technically, and maybe you got some good plans to go out, do a hike, maybe try to find some water, still keep your social distance as we are all going through this weird, unusual time. I have to say it's a little strange with summer and not uh, hitting up the lake as often or seeing as many people as you usually do during the summer months or even just enjoying uh, outside uh, hot dogs with uh, barbecues and whatnot. Uh, But with that said, we did have a very awesome guest, Joe Bellavance. He is the president founder of Jay Bellavance Consulting, and he has been working in the higher ed space for a number of years. Um, really started his career out actually and wanted to become a broadcaster, which he points out. And then uh, there was something that happened, very pivotal moment in his life early on that caused him to switch pit and pivot and change gears. And he ended up in the higher ed space. And he's been working with um, in Dean of Admissions and Admissions Departments all over the New England area and colleges that he actually attended and worked at. Uh, but he does work with uh, education, uh, colleges, and universities all over. So if you are interested, you definitely need to find Joe at Jay Bevelance Consulting. Uh, but yeah, it was a good conversation. We talked obviously a lot about the COVID-19 situation, how schools have responded, but also kind of talked about higher level things about what they're doing to prepare for the upcoming fall semester. You know, what are the options? They list they might have two or three plans currently right now. And we all know that those people up on the board levels of these universities have quite a task to deal with in uh, figuring out where students are going to be, how to attract them to the universities, and what will the process be. So hopefully you get a good insight on uh, what the landscape is is dealing with and how Joe is, is working with his his partner. So uh, enjoy this. This is a conversation with Joe and you're in the queue. Thanks, Joe, for joining us here on the queue. Uh, I just really want to say you just told me right before we started that you had a broadcast journalism background like myself and you were someone who wanted to become an announcer for the Boston Red Sox. I, so I, obviously you're from the, the Northeast. I mean, Tell me about growing up in the Northeast, and I also want to ask you real quick, how was it in 2003, 4, whenever you, those two years yeah. were so, so, so big for you? It was October 2004, um, yep. and uh, the weight of the world was off everybody's shoulders here in New England. Um, I was um, actually at Game 3 of the Red Sox-Yankees game when they got beat 19-8, to and... God is my witness. I drove home that night saying, just sweep them, take them in four. I don't want to lose in seven games. I've, I've watched too much uh, to know the st- how the story ends. And uh, lo and behold, of course, I watched every pitch of every inning, uh, you know, for the next four games. And they won all four of those and then won all four against St. Louis. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was a crazy time for everybody here. I mean, people going to the cemetery and leaving copies of the Boston Globe on – on their parents and grandparents' gravestones saying we did it. You know, I mean, that's, that was, it was just a crazy time, but um, yeah, 
Well worth well, the wait. There were a lot of tears before that. <laughs> oh yes, you are. Uh, that's what I mentioned, 2003, because the 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 Aaron Boone shot yeah. to left field in Yankee Stadium, and then the next year you guys get Big Poppy Revenge, and I mean I know that game four I guess would have been that extra innings game, and just must have been the craziest thing to watch. And then obviously, like yeah. you said, just the 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 never losing again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, well, I, I tell people I was born in 64, I've been a fan since 63. So, yep. um, it, 75 Red Sox, you know, the greatest World Series we, you know, we ever won. Uh, that we In three games to four, as Carlton Fist likes to say. Um, yep. And then 78 with the Bucky Dent home run. Uh, yeah, I've lived through a lot. 86. Uh, yeah, not pretty. <laughs> yeah. Well, I will say I'm not feeling feeling bad for you because y'all have been a championship city for the past 20 years. So I'm not going to, not going to pity you too much. (laughs) I've told my kids, these are not your father's Red Sox, Patriots, Celtics, you know, um, so Bruins, but yeah, it's been, it's been a good decade and a half. (laughs) Well, that's good. I'm glad. So yeah. Um, would love to hear, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, you know, you obviously grew up a, a Sox fan, New England fan, uh, but what was it that kind of got you into the education space early on? So, yeah, I was uh, so as, as I mentioned before, uh, I, I went off to college to so Linden State College, uh, one of the, my state college in northern Vermont um, to be a broadcast journalism major. And, um, yeah, I just, you know, I, I got through the, doing the program. And I started taking some business courses as electives, you know, and, and started showing some interest in that. And just a really funny, you know, small town story because they're only in Vermont. Um, one of my assignments for, for my organizational behavior class was we had to go interview a, a local organization about how they're organized and, you know, how their business was developed and such. And at that time, in 1985, Ben and Jerry's Ice Cream was just getting ready to open up a new manufacturing plant in Waterbury, Vermont. And I grew up about a half hour from there. And um, so I asked my professor, I'm like, look, if, if we can get the interview, can we go over to Ben and Jerry's and talk to them? And uh, and he's like, of course, you know, so this group of four guys, we, we went over there and we met with um, Dave Barish, who at the time was the head of personnel. Well, long story short, we were visiting with, with this guy, Dave, when Jerry came walking in and goes, hey, I hear there's some college kids who want to know how we got started and you know, what, what we do here. And um, so we sat with Jerry Greenfield for three and a half hours eating ice cream and uh, talking about his business. And I said, that's what I want to do. I want to, you know, give out free ice cream and do marketing and do outreach and uh, yeah, just kind of changed my uh, trajectory. And, and uh, that's when I got an interest in, in marketing area. And when, uh, when I graduated, I took a job um, with a, an investment firm, insurance and investment firm. I got my series six license for mutual funds. And then we had black Monday in October of 87, I believe it was when the market lost one third of its value. And I said, I'm not sure I can do this for the rest of my life. Um, and there was an opening at, at Linden State. And so I figured oh, I'll go back. And they, I'm like, you want to pay me to, to travel and talk about the school? Of course I'll do that. I, best four years of my life. Um, and I really thought I'd do that for just a couple of years, get some marketing experience, and then move on from there. And uh, 10 years later, I was the dean of enrollment there and, and then moved to Massachusetts and spent the next you know 30 years in higher ed. <laughs> Wow. So went from ice cream changing. I mean, yes, it must've been some good ice cream. I know Ben and Jerry's is great. I've actually been, the best. <laughs> I've, I know I've, I've been to Stowe in in Vermont and passed by the, I don't know if that, is that the original one that's outside of Burlington? 
So Burlington, yes, they were founded in Burlington. They, they would put up a, a sheet and play free movies at the top of a parking garage. And they literally made it out of a, a little machine that they, they bought online um, or out of a catalog, I guess. And uh, yeah. yeah, and then in Waterbury, the between Waterbury um, and the interstate, right off the interstate there um, was where they built their big plant. And at that time, if you took a tour, you got a free pint of ice cream of whatever they were making that day. Now, of course, it's gotten so huge, they give you like one of those little dentist cup you know, sampling. So much different place today, but much bigger place today too. <laughs> yes. Yes. A big, big, big operation. Well, yeah. So you mentioned obviously that the, the fall of 87, then you get into the education space. What was it like back then trying to recruit students? And, and I, you know, maybe not to the biggest university, but what was it back then? Yeah. So it, it was really interesting because at, at Linden State at the time, a very small um, public college, um, and I really didn't even realize that what colleges did for outreach. I just knew that I had an interest and a strength in marketing. And so when I came back to the institution, I was simply an admissions counselor working with a couple other, you know, I had a director that was there for 24 years since 1969. Um, and uh, so, uh, so yeah, it was what I found out was like, oh, wait a minute, you actually do outreach to all these places. And when I was in high school, I got a few letters in the mail from different colleges, you know, uh, looking at me and, and asked me to take an interest. Um, so when I started getting into it, I, I realized that, look, this is what it was. Fortunately for me, it was my alma mater. So I'm like, this is what it meant to me. And this is what I think we do really well. Um, I also learned a lot about unions and faculty and, uh, you know, their place in, in this space and, um, and, and really helping to help students and families understand what it is that we provide um, and why this is the place to do that. And, and that's where, you know, I started really thinking about what I call my AAA approach. Um, you analyze what's my purpose for my outreach, um, anticipate who's my audience, you know, and then adapting my message to what is it that they need to hear. And it's been a kind of a staple of all the work that I've always done is, you know, or as The Rock likes to say, know your role, jabroni, <laughs> you know, who you serve and who you serve well, you know, and, and do it well. So uh, that's, but yeah, in the old days, it was funny, uh, a quick story. Um, when I first took over as the director, you know, our, our director had been there, like I said, for, for 24 years and a great guy, learned a lot from him, but a lot of things hadn't changed over the years. We hadn't done anything new. And so one of the things I did is I changed our student search outreach to, to kids. And, you know, we had the business reply envelopes, you know, back in those days, remember the BREs? And uh, it was funny because we did our outreach about the same time for student search for juniors at the same time that we were accepting deposits from, from kids um, who were seniors getting ready to come in for the fall. And one day we got like over a hundred BRE envelopes and everybody in the office was excited. It's like, oh my God, look at all these deposits rolling in. And then we learned that they weren't the deposits. Those were just the inquiries for the next year's class. We'd done a really good job with our outreach and suddenly got a lot of response. And so uh, the second year I, I distinguished between those BRE envelopes to make sure I knew which ones were inquiries and which ones were actually deposits. But <laughs> Um, you know, nowadays everything's online, right? I mean, who knew, you know, this is where we we're going to be all these years later. So, yeah. So for the most part, it was a lot, just a lot of mail, right? I mean, it was, were you reaching yeah. specific zones or high schools within the New England area that you knew you got maybe a lot of students to, to pull from? Yep. Yeah. Well, we, so one of the things that I always have tried to practice is to really understand who our audience is now. A lot of colleges don't like to think of themselves as a business or parts of the college don't like to think that, right? Um, and 
and yet we do have a product that we sell, right? I mean, it's, it's an education. And in today's day and age, you can get it in a lot of different ways, a lot of different deliveries in a lot of different places. And so what we really needed to do was to understand what do we have to offer? Where does that fall in the marketplace? And how do we make that connection? Um, you know, we can't all be going after the A plus, you know, perfect SAT score student. That, that's not who we serve. So for me, it was going back to the literally to the registrar's office and saying, okay, give me everybody who actually graduated from here this year. Give me all the data you have on them. Because when I got to Nichols College in Massachusetts, a small business school, that was my, my second stop. Everybody kept saying, oh, Joe, will you take this student? And they show me like these transcripts of students, you know, the lower scores, the lower um, GPAs and such. And I said, well, let's take a look at who's successful here. And so by going to the registrar's office, I could find out what was their high school GPA coming in here? What was their class rank? What were their SAT or ACT scores? You know, and have a profile. Let me show you, guidance counselor, who's doing really well here because they just graduated. That's who we work with well. If you send me that student, I will help them grow and become a, a, a better professional and, and, and person and put them out in the world. And, and this is a result of our work. And we, we did what we called the added up campaign. You know, if you give us this type of student, we're going to add these types of skills. And this is the bottom line in terms of their, their job placement, their average salaries and all that stuff. So it was, you know, finding out who we, who we were as an institution, who we wanted to be, and then making sure we got to the, to the audience that we thought we could connect the most with. Well, it makes sense. And, and it sounds like the, the data piece, you always utilized it. It's just now instead of you having to walk over to the registrar's office, maybe they send you, a, maybe you have a CRM system or something exactly. to pull that from. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I do want to fast forward to what we've been going through over these past three months and you working with education clients all over I mean, how, from the feedback that you've gotten from a lot of these schools that you do work with or have worked with in the past, how have they been managing this, this unusual and very, um, uh, the, the pandemic, I mean, COVID-19. Yeah, this, COVID yeah, this has flipped everybody on the ear, right? I mean, um, what's interesting is I, I went out on my own in this consulting business in March of 2019. My wife and I went out for a dinner in the middle of March, 2020, to celebrate my one year anniversary. And two days later, the governor of Massachusetts shut down the whole state and I haven't been out to dinner since. So, um, and, you know, and, and so I can only imagine, you know, in talking with my, and I, I refer to them as my colleagues and friends, because literally I got into this business to work with my colleagues and friends and help them, you know, with some of these challenges. And so for everybody, um, the, the first hurdle was, we got to get these students safely out of here and back home. We've got to get them online for the last two months of the semester, um, which was just a Herculean, you know, task. And um, and everybody has been able to do that, um, you know, successfully. I think so. You know, kudos to the higher ed industry and everybody, you know, that that worked on that to do that. And now the biggest question really is: is what are we going to be able to do this fall? You know, everybody that I speak with has got a, a plan A, B, and C, you know, and um, and the tough part is that changes not just day to day, but maybe minute to minute. Um, you know, I think most uh, are looking to plan to be back on campus this fall. You know, we're all hopeful that we can do that. 
um, and plan for that. But the reality is that will fall on the local governments to let us know if that's okay or not. And uh, with all the planning in the world, if the governor says you can't congregate, then you're not going to congregate. So, um, so yeah, this is the other thing that in conversations and from my perspective, I've, I've tried to say this to a lot of my colleagues is now is a really good time to look at your institution. Again, who do you serve? Who do you serve well? What is at the core of your values um, and, and your institution? Because I, I related it to, to basically a tsunami. You know, when a tsunami comes in, that wave comes in, crashes on shore, and then pulls everything away. And what it does, it leaves you with, with a landscape that has only the most deeply rooted things left. And so my advice to them is use this time to reflect on what is left. Like this has hit us. And what is the most deeply rooted things about us that we want to say as an institution? Because going forward, the higher landscape is going to be very, very different. Um, you know, we, for decades, I've been doing this for 30 plus years. You know, we've all tried different things to, to attract new students. The climbing walls, the single resident space with your own private bathroom. You know, we've, we've built these things for, for a generation of students who had these expectations um driving up the cost and now it's like wait a minute you know we're in a place where even you know middle class and upper middle class families are saying i'm not going to spend seventy thousand dollars for my kid to sit on my couch and take these courses online you know so i think we all want to get back to the classroom and and value that uh, i'm a first generation student my parents did not have the opportunity to go to college um and you know, what you learn in the classroom, I, I tell people all the time, is it's not about learning more, it's about behaving differently. You know, even though I went to my own state college, I met people from, you know, across the gamut, you know, racial and, you know, ethnicity, religions, all that stuff that just totally changed my outlook, you know, and so I'm hopeful that we all get back to the classroom and, and people are able to to do that, but I the environment is going to change and um, we have to take a real hard look at what is our cost to deliver education, what's built into those costs and, and where can we either cut some of that or provide an extra value that is worthy of, of the price that we ask. Um, yeah. I just recently, um, I've been working with, my apologies, the Linden State College, my alma mater is now Northern Vermont University. A few years ago, they merged Linden and Johnson as one university. This year, the chancellor announced that they were looking to close three of the campuses, and uh, and so there's been a big, you know, review of that. And to date, they've saved all the campuses, um, and people are working really hard to provide that because each of those campuses serves a very small rural area of the state that would have economic, you know, ramifications as well as educational opportunity ramifications for kids. And um, it's you know we we really got to look at where are we at, what are we delivering, and so my, you know, open-ed letter to the, you know, to the editor of the local paper was basically everybody needs to come back and sit around the table. You know, the, the legislature in terms of what they're providing, the governor, um, you know, the chancellor and the leadership there, the, the unions, you know, in terms of what can they give, um, the taxpayer and the student. You know, what are we all willing to bring to the table to have a real conversation about the value of education and, and show it in real dollars? Yeah, and that's what I was going to ask you is, is how, how soon is that conversation taking place? And I know there's got to be, I mean, marketing dollars that are trying to be figured out right now. And like you said, there's, there's 
probably cuts with certain projects maybe that were in phase one on campuses all across the nation, but how soon or quickly are these conversations being had with some of the colleges that you work with? Yeah, right now, most colleges, the fiscal year is July 1 to June 30th, uh, and most our budgets are set in April. You know, it's like, okay, you got a chance to review and, and, and get everything ready and then put together your projects and move forward as of the 1st of July. But most institutions I'm working with now are still have not set budgets because they don't know if they're opening this fall. And they, you know, aren't sure. Everybody that I'm working with seems to be cautiously optimistic about the deposits that they've received and the classes coming in. But cautiously optimistic is the key two words there, Um, you know, and because it's all, you know, prevailing on whether or not they can open the campus, you know, this fall. Uh, Because if they have to go online, families and consumers are basically saying, wait a minute, I'm not paying the full rate to do an online program. You know, I can do an online program with, you know, one of these other named institutions, you know, Southern New Hampshire University or, you know, University of Phoenix, you know, those kinds of things. Um, so, so it's a difficult time to really set their budgets. Um, but what a lot of them are doing, this is the advice I provided is before you just slash, you know, all your athletics or all this or all that, you really need to sit down and look at what does it cost us to deliver that education? You know, I'll give you a good example um, where I think it's, it's interesting. And I understand the politics of it, but if you're a state college, like right now in New England, they've got the, um, the regional uh, repository. Uh, it's called the Apple program. Basically, the regional student program where if your state college doesn't offer a certain program, you can study at another state college within New England for a reduced rate of tuition. So you don't have to pay the whole out-of-state rate. Well, a lot of colleges are trying to get creative about like, well, if we name the program this instead of this, then we can say that nobody else offers it and we can discount the price. And, and my point is get away from all that and think about what does it actually cost you to educate a student, you know, and then start from there, you know, and then determine from there what are your costs and what needs to be added to that as far as a cost, if you're depending on what the deliverables are, right? It doesn't matter if the student's from Connecticut or from Vermont or from Massachusetts. It's the same student in the same classroom with the same professor, right? Um, but Again, with legislators and taxpayers, I totally get that we all want to be cautious of where our dollars are spent. We don't want to educate somebody from out of state. But we've reached a, a place now where we have to really think about this. And, and we need to get students in the seats and educated as opposed to worrying about where they live, you know, where they come from. So, Right. And I know that traditionally schools can battle for, for kids all over. And this is not... Uh, foreign to to anywhere else in the country. I mean, there's colleges in every state that will battle for these kids. Do you feel that that has ramped up the battle this time, or has it sort of been a little bit better now that everybody's maybe trying to work together? I don't know. What do you what are you seeing on your end? Yeah, it's interesting. For the last decade or so, I've really seen a lot of colleges go outside of their geo markets, right, to to look for students. For instance, again here in New England you see a lot of, of um, schools in the South that are reaching up into New England for students and saying, hey, come down here, the weather's better. You know, my own daughter, personal story, you know, born in, in Vermont, lived in Vermont for six years of her life, moved to Massachusetts. Um, we know that Massachusetts is always one of the, the states with the highest test scores and such. Um, started getting stuff from schools down South. She ended up enrolling at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. And uh, she was a, a dance major, you know, performing arts major. And uh, yeah, and, and so those schools have, have reached into New England. New England, you know, the demographics are working against everybody. And that's the other thing is 
you know, too many of our institutions are trying to grow their way out of these things. You know, like, oh, if we just add more majors or we just go into new markets, easier said than done. I mean, if, if you're not a well-known institution who has a national presence, it's very difficult to go into a, a tertiary market and say, hey, here we are, come enroll. Um, and, and so that's, you know, and, and what most institutions, most enrollment professionals understand, but maybe their board of trustees don't. It takes more dollars to go get those students, right, and to do those. And it takes more years. I mean, you got to get a footprint, to, you know, on the moon first before you go in there and, and, and uh, do more things. So, um, and right now, a lot of institutions are saying, hey, wait a minute, if we're not going to travel this fall, then you guys can just give back your travel budget. You know, let's just cut that. And it's like, no, wait a minute. You know, what the admissions office has to do now is invest in more technology around their Zoom meetings, you know, about delivering, you know, more video content, you know, investing in that, um, trying to find new ways to reach students. The other big concern with higher ed right now is as fewer kids are testing through the College Board and ACT, and, and I know both organizations are doing a lot to, to um, help with that and, and, and doing, again, Herculean efforts there as well. Institutions are a little bit nervous that if I can't, you know, go out and do these, these college fairs and these high school visits this fall, I need to find other avenues for getting my word out. And so, so part of what I'm doing is helping them to think about where are the new sources, what are the new uh, digital media outreaches that they can do that um, that are available. Because the other thing that's happening is, and I'm sure you're aware, uh, you know, with the European Union and the GDPR, you know, regulations and privacy and all of that stuff, you know, it's a changing world there too. And and I have to say, probably for the better. You know, uh, you know, we we've gotten to a place where, you know, I can't go online without getting, you know, some sort of ad from Home Depot or Starbucks or somebody who knows that I was looking for a chimney for my backyard, you know, it's like, uh, um, but uh, yeah, so that's, you know, what I'm trying to say uh, to both my clients, enrollment professionals, as well as their presidents and boards is don't look automatically to slash some of this, these, this money that you have and give it back to the organization because you're going to need it in other places if you're going to maintain, you know, what it is you're trying to do as far as enrollment volume. Yeah. It makes total sense. And the, the ways you traditionally were able to capture students, maybe that that path or that um, flood of students and that's, I guess, revenue stream, so to speak. I know it's we're talking about students in their education, but that might slow a bit. And so you have to find those other ways to reach those students. Uh, yeah. What you mentioned a few <laughs> a few different creepy ways to obviously attack people and, and serve them ads. What are you trying to get across to your, your the people you work with, the those higher those board members of of the ways to reach those Gen Zers or traditional students or maybe non traditional students? Yeah, I think um, you know th there's the traditional people have been doing the emails and all that, and you know, um, but that there's so many devices now. Gmail, you know, Google has changed the algorithms; they're making it a lot more difficult. What I've been trying to do is, is help my institutions find students and families where they are, which is on their mobile device, right? Um, it's very interesting that, you know, we, none of us go, go anywhere without taking, you know, our mobile device with us. And so um, you may not get a traditional student's name, you know, and that, that you then mail out to them or you email them, um, you know, 
nobody's doing newspapers or radio ads anymore, right? But what we can do on the mobile, well, I shouldn't say nobody, but it's I, that's what I've seen is where money has gone from those platforms to your mobile device now, right? And streaming audio, streaming TV, you know, which makes more sense because you're finding them where they are. So, so it's really, you know, again, about developing short, quick messages that resonate with your audience and, and um, you know, understanding who's on the other side of that receiving it and, and making sure that that, quick, you know, few seconds that you have in front of them, you know, is, is spent wisely um, and at, with the right people. And for a lot of it, it's really reinforcing things. So you, as, as a family, you, you reach out to them through email or, you know, you, you send them a really nice four color piece, you know, and, you, and, and then all of a sudden on the mobile device, it comes up and, you know, XYZ University is like, oh, wait, I got something in the mail, you know, about that. And, it's really more of a reinforcement. Um, you know, the, the, the other thing that I try to get my clients to think about more um, is retention as well. Because for so many institutions, you know, if you bring in a class and half that class leaves after the first year, um, you've got some unhappy customers who are leaving and they're not going to blame them themselves for leaving they're going to be like oh they didn't give me a good experience or you know whatever it is so every time you lose somebody there's an opportunity for that student to say something poorly about your institution and so one of the things i try to do is help them to understand who are you losing and why and 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 uh, making sure that you're delivering the experience that you say you're going to up front uh, because the more you retain, the fewer new customers you have to get, right? Um, and and the happier they tend to be. And and, and so um, making sure that the student has a good first year experience. Um, and um, and it, it doesn't mean bending over backwards and delivering everything possible for them. What it means is making sure that you deliver what you said you were going to deliver and, um, and that they've been able to connect and become part of your community as opposed to being a customer. Um, I, I did um, my research, my grad work years ago, and one of the um, findings uh, with significant, you know, statistical significance was if the student found themselves, um, defined themselves as a, a, um, uh, a member of the community as opposed to a customer, they were much more likely to stay enrolled and graduate. Um, and it's, it's about inviting them to become part of this new community, making sure they transition well. So. Right. And that really does happen when you have them on campus <laughs> and they yeah. are in, in the community, not commuting or commuting 30, even 30 minutes uh, to go to, to go to college, which I guess leads me to my next question, which if things don't get better and say, I mean, not to get political, but to say there is a second spike and, and we do start seeing more more quarantine efforts happening closer to the fall semesters and people and, and all these part, uh, schools that you work with have to go to plan B. Um, you know, do you know or have any remnants or what you can share um, to, to us and obviously anybody listening about what that might look like? Yeah, one of the things that I think is would be really, really important is, um, is that the institutions start thinking about their delivery. Like I true believer, you got to have the on-campus experience. Like I said before, it's not about learning more. It's about behaving differently. But one of the things that I think we can do is within our campus communities is deliver that classroom experience for those courses that 
it's really important to, to, to develop the soft skills, right? I mean, again, we can, we can Google quickly what are employers looking for, and it's all about the soft skills, communication, collaboration, teamwork, you know, and it's really difficult to do that online. You know, I mean, I know it's possible. I've taught online courses, but, um, but getting them in the classroom. But there are courses that are, are more relevant to an online experience. So if a traditional student is on campus and they take five classes a semester, maybe three of them are in the classroom and it's, you know, your philosophy, your, your, you know, whatever those are, you know, the, the programs are, but then there's two courses that every student is going to be required to take two courses online and then three in the classroom or vice versa. And so you got that kind of hybrid approach, but they're still on campus. They're still engaging. There's an opportunity to meet with faculty, even with the online experience that we're engaging each other, you know, outside of the classroom. Um, and there, when, you know, if the pandemic comes back, you know, there's another surge and, we, and people need to leave, there's an easier transition back to the online with everyone knowing that our ultimate goal is to be here and, you know, and be together as a community and, and learn from each other. Because I tell students all the time, you'll learn as much outside the classroom as you will in the classroom, you know, um, and with each other, you know, as opposed to, it's not just about the faculty member, it's about, you know, that, that whole experience. And so I think those institutions that do that this fall, A, will be better prepared in the event that they have to switch back. Um, and, and I think they've all learned from that now, but also will show a commitment to their, their campus community and be able to do that. Um, you know, my mom used to say, you know, this too shall pass. And, you know, we, we believe that it will, but unfortunately in this case, it will take a longer period of time. So, and the other piece of that, I think that's important is when you do that online experience, I know for me, when I got out into the work world, most of the stuff, my learning for my work was always was centered around online. So you have to take a sexual harassment certification program for your employer, right? And make sure it, so it's online. So that's what you do. And, um, or, you know, all these other things. So I think it will also provide really good skills for the students to, you know, to have that face-to-face -face experience with that, because eventually most of your professional development later on is going to be an online experience. Um, yeah, you so just provided, yeah, that, that whole concept of experiential learning, still trying to find that experiential learning through online or virtual courses, that's going to be difficult. <laughs> and I think yeah. that's what's going to be hard for a lot of these students. And that's what would be my next question to you. It sounds like your daughter is, is at North Carolina right now. She's or actually she... graduated. All three kids have grown and graduated. Okay. All student loans have been paid off. Life is good. <laughs> Hey, credit to them. I'm still working on some of mine. So, uh, well, I but, shouldn't yeah. say that. I should take that back. They are still paying on theirs, but all of dad's loans and, and uh, <laughs> obligations are, are good. So, <laughs> I get it. I get it. No, that's that's typically the case. Still, they, they follow you no matter where you go. So, I could yeah. I could I could move to uh, to Southeast Asia, and those things would still follow me. So, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Uh, anyway, no, but yeah, that's what I would ask you. I mean, we've talked a lot about the schools themselves and, and what their approach is going to be and, and turning the corner or preparing for, like you said, a possible surge too, or, um, or another rise in cases where you have to pivot again. But what would you tell those seniors right now who are, you know, they didn't get their graduation, didn't get their proms, and they're trying to figure out and navigate you know, what do I do? Do I take a, take a, a gap year? Like, like some kids, you know, are, are thinking or, 
do you just go and, and take your courses online this year and try to get some of the basics in? Like what, how do you, or what would be your recommendation knowing that you've obviously got a hand in uh, the process and how uh, these uh, different colleges are, are maneuvering this? Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I actually have a nephew who is in the class of 2020 and uh, missed his spring baseball season. Um, and uh, graduation was in a parking lot. And unfortunately, you know, I was not able to attend because it was one car per family, you know, so grandparents rule, you know, along with parents and uh, which is great. I mean, that was, it was great for all of them, but yeah, I, I think, you know, it's, here's my worry. I, again, I mentioned before, a first generation student, you know, my worry is for that first generation student who um, I would hate to see them take a gap year because my fear is that they would not come back to the process. Like they've, they invested so much now, um, and gotten to a certain place that, you know, if, if they were to take a gap year, would they just not do it? You know? And, and, um, I mean, again, I grew up in a, in a small town in Northern Vermont, you know, at my age now, six of us of the class of, you know, 53 students in that graduating class, six of us have a bachelor's degree. Now, that school now, almost half of those kids go on to college now, and that's where my nephew just graduated from, and, and he's going on to school this this fall. But um, but I do worry, you know, again, for, for those students that um, if they don't go on. Um, so it, it's really, you know, what are the opportunities? You know, if even if it's, uh, you know, a lot of students going local, you know, and, um, and taking courses at their local college or doing an online, stay, staying engaged, um, and, and like I said, the, you know, this too shall pass. Um, and it's, it's keeping your brain active and, and focused on the long term. Um, because I, you know, an education is something they can't take away from you. We're in a pandemic and people have lost their jobs, but they can't take back the education that you got. And, um, you know, again, we all know, and again, not to get political, but we all know those, you know, when you have a further education, you're more likely to be in a, in a, in a job where you can work from home and you're, you've gotten through this, you, you have health insurance and, you know, and, and all those things that, that get us through these trying times. And now at 56 years of age, I've, I've seen it, you know, a few times, the, the ups and downs. And, and um, it, it's the one thing that, you know, I've been able to continuously, you know, adjust and, and maneuver because that's what education can do for you. So, um, my real advice to the students is, is hang in there um, and, um, and keep your eye on the long-term prize. Uh, because if, if you take that left at Albuquerque and don't go back, there'll be an impact for 40 or 50 years as opposed to just one year. Right. It's tough to, to, to like you said, I mean, that's a good perspective to think about it. You know, you can't, pandemic can take away livelihood in some ways and being able to do what you want and go, go, I don't know, to, to, to Sonic and get a, a, a smoothie or whatever, <laughs> but it can't take away, it can't take away your ability to learn and, and, uh, and gain knowledge. So that's, that's a, that's a good, good way to put it. And that's where I think my question is, uh, I guess one of, we can kind of end, I guess on this note, but as, as, as schools are, are starting to prepare and, and open things back up, is there any thought in terms of where they're going to like move courses or maybe prepare differently in the structure of something like that? Or is it still, are they still trying to main, can remain consistent and keep things as normal as possible? 
Yeah, I think for most of them, they are really struggling with the social distancing part of it, you know, the classroom space, you know, and in which, you know, offices are necessary on campus. You know, I've heard, you know, with some admissions offices, you know, they have some prime space, right, because they, they welcome people from all over the country, all over the world, you know, and, and so they've got these nice facilities. And in some cases, those are being going to be turned into the classroom space and admissions people are kind of like, okay, you can continue to work remotely. As long if, if we can't bring in new visitors, then we're going to need that space for classroom. Or, you know, some institutions are, are looking at, um, you know, a dual schedule. So it's like, you know, we're going to have these classes available in the morning and in the evening. And some people are going to take them here, some here, so we can spread them out in that classroom. So there's no doubt about it that higher ed is, is working very hard to be respectful of, um, of everyone's, you know, safety issues and such. And I think what I would say to the families too, because I, again, seeing this on both sides, is for the families to be patient with, uh, with their enrollment colleagues uh, or, or people because, you know, we don't have all the answers yet. You know, is my is my son or daughter going to have to wear their mask in their dorm room or, you know, in the residence hall space? We don't know yet. You know, we're, we're trying to, you know, develop this as we go. And and, and everybody's listening to the ex experts and trying to figure it out. So, um, like I said before, plans are changing, you know, not by the day, but by the minute and by the hour. And, uh, and people are working really, really hard and looking at those classrooms and literally the physical space and, you know, how do we do this in, in, in a safe and respectful way that delivers the kind of experience that we want our students to have, so. Mm -hmm. And uh, before we get off the topic of, of everything you do and, and, and how you work with your clients, where can people find you if they want to discuss these, these things or just uh, hear more about, uh, you know, how, they, how to navigate this process? Sure, it's, uh, my website is jbellevance.com, uh, both my, First letter J from Joe, and then Bellavance, B-E-L-L-A-V-A-N-C-E uh, dot com. And um, yeah, or you can email me at joe at jbellavance.com. And uh, yeah, or I'm LinkedIn for my enrollment colleagues who can see me there. So um, yeah, cool. plenty of ways to find and, me. And, and I, I do have to talk about this because I'm a huge, huge baseball fan and I know we might not get a season, but I did see some news yesterday that it's sent and it's the 24th of June today. So yesterday there was a, looks like the players union might be one step closer to having a shortened season, something like 60 games, maybe. I mean, in the new England area, that's a huge deal. I know in Texas where I'm at, baseball's big, but nowhere near. It's all about the um, University of Texas, right? <laughs> exactly. It's all football and basketball. I will say, but football and basketball are definitely really, really big uh, juggernaut sports down here in the South or at least Texas. Um, but for you and your, uh, your, your fandom uh, around you, how are you, are you, I know you gotta hope there's going to be at least some games this year. Yeah, yeah, sixty games. It's uh, it's weird. If if we have not won as many times as we have recently, I'd be really worried. Like you got to get a season in, and then even then, that would be the year that they actually won it, right? And then everybody'd be like, "Oh, uh -huh. asterisk, asterisk." But um, but yeah, I do I do hope. Uh, you know, I I literally live six and a half miles from Fenway Park. You know, um, and and so to see it vacant. In fact, just really quickly, yesterday. Um, I, I was uh, mowing my lawn, taking care of my, my front yard, and this older gentleman walked by me, and, and he's like, hey, I see you got a Fenway shirt on. He's like, uh, can I just show you a quick picture? And of course, he's got his mask on, and I do. And 
he um, he actually worked in the Legends box uh, at Fenway Park for years and years. And uh, he, he lives up the road for me. I, I had not met him. I've lived where I live now for three years and he had just moved to the area. He's like, I really miss my job. You know, he's like, you know, he talked about all the old guys that he's met, you know, and and we talked for a few minutes, just, you know, six feet apart on the sidewalk. And uh, yeah, we both were reminiscing about the good old days, uh, the good and the bad days. And uh, yeah, absolutely looking forward to getting baseball back and having a hot dog and enjoying Fenway Park. So. That is the highlight of your month. That is, yeah, uh, yeah. I think it, that's just meant to be. I think that guy just walks around the like all the neighborhoods <laughs> just to give people like yourselves some yeah. sort of like resemblance and hope. <laughs> yeah, it was so funny. He was carrying his little his little brown bag with his grinder in it that he bought probably from the local, uh, you know, pub down here and stuff takeout. And uh, what a great older gentleman and just yeah it was it was pretty awesome to be able to reminisce with somebody about the years and and uh, keep our fingers crossed for you know even if it's a shortened season to, to get in some games yes i hope so too i'm uh i know this is not going to go well i think this might be the first time i ever said i'm a huge astros fan and obviously uh there's a lot of rumors that maybe the astros had something to do with this pandemic because of uh our our <laughs> <laughs> red Sox too right we had some you know we Alex Cora, we've we've got relatives, uh, you know. Yep. So <laughs> and it uh, sounds like the Yankees are reinvestigating the Yankees, that. Yep. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like they're reinvestigating the uh, the uh, Apple Watch uh, <laughs> stuff. And honestly, at this point, uh, I think it will help. I mean, like you said, Astros. We were in the World Series last year, barely lost. But you know, then again, you guys won it two years ago. So well, and we're I'll not, say just really quick, the Washington Nationals. I. I Sorry, but I had to root for them because they were the old Montreal Expos. And growing up in northern Vermont, we would go up to Montreal Stadium, you know, the old Olympic uh, Park, and watch Expos games up there. And, and they had, during their shortened season, that was the year that they, they were in first place, ready to head into the playoffs and finally win their first World Series, I think. And, and that season got canceled and first, you know, playoff season that got canceled. So, so I had to root for the Nationals, even though I can't find any old Expo stuff on their website to to purchase <laughs> yeah no that's uh, hey that's that was I, it's so sad that montreal lost that team i think they're still on the short list i think for the next mlb team yeah. if there is uh an expansion because they really want it back up there i know i've been to montreal beautiful city and I, those people really do miss that that baseball especially yeah. yeah even like some parts of new england like you said that you know northern parts of vermont that uh that were huge expos fans so yeah we definitely. could drive two hours to montreal or three hours to boston you know and tickets were a lot cheaper in montreal and uh, you probably yeah. don't remember bill lee the old red sox pitcher the lefty uh, the 75 world series but he lives up near my old uh, neighborhood and and uh he's he's one of the guys on the the whatever board or committee they have that's trying to bring baseball back to montreal so uh yeah, the Bill, the Spaceman Lee. So, oh, look it up. Well, <laughs> I, I'm, 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 I'm now just getting too, too hopeful, uh, and I'm going to be just so disappointed. But I, I, I'm, I'm hoping you get some baseball. I'm hoping, obviously, the people you work with uh, can have some more normalcy starting in the fall. But Joe, I really do appreciate you joining us here in the queue. Ah, you're very welcome. Happy to do it. Thank you.
This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Q1 Media. Q1 Media partners with agencies and brands all across the nation for all their digital marketing needs, whether it's CTV, OTT, location-based mobile device ID targeting, search engine marketing, targeted display, any research and data that you need, whatever it is, Q1 Media can help with your marketing efforts. Please check out Q1 Media's website at q1media.com. That's Q, the number one, media.com. You can view case studies, examples of our work, uh, or just check out more episodes of the podcast, The Q, Conversations in Digital Media. 